Earth is our home, and we, along with all life, are dependent on it for our future. There is no more fundamental issue from either a philosophical or a practical viewpoint than to understand Earth's history and how it has evolved to form the environment we live in and the resources on which we depend. The origin of Earth and our role within it has fascinated humanity from time immemorial. Yet, we know remarkably little of Earth's long-term temporal and spatial evolution. Apart from the last few thousand years, most of our 4.55 billion years of history is preserved in the rock archive, where that record is incomplete, and our knowledge of it decreases with increasing age and depth. Hello, my fellow geoscience aficionados. You are listening to Nice Chats from the Geology Podcast Network. I am Dr. B, and in each episode, I will interview an expert in various areas in geoscience and share with you a little bit of their knowledge and expertise in the research of geological problems. Each of our episodes has a central theme, and since we'll have an expert walk us through the various subjects, you don't need to worry about having any previous knowledge of what we'll be talking about. As long as you're passionate about the study of geology, I, with the help of our guest, will take care of feeding you all the information you need in a casual and fun environment. The narrative you just heard is not from a new Our Planet series on Netflix. It is, in fact, a few lines of code that simulate Sir David Attenborough reading the first few phrases of an article written by this episode's guest, Laureate Professor Peter Kaywood from Monash University in Melbourne. It is my opinion that the geological questions that Peter has set off to answer are among the most significant questions that Earth scientists can dream of resolving. These questions are on par with major themes featured in Sir David Attenborough's famous documentary series, such as climate change and the evolution and maintenance of life on our planet. Peter and his research group, The Pulse of the Earth, are trying to circumvent the many obstacles that are inherent to the geological processes and relying on new innovative ways to extract information from the geological record. As significant and overwhelming as some of these questions might seem, Peter is one of the nicest and warmest people that I have met within academia and incidentally is also my boss. So I'm very excited to interview him for the first ever episode of Nice Chats. Hello Peter. I'd like to first welcome you to our inaugural episode of the Nice Chats podcast. Thank you, Vitor. It's a pleasure to be here and I look forward to the chat. Yeah, thanks for agreeing to participate. And I'm very interested in hearing some of your thoughts on the questions that I have prepared. But before we get started, I want to start each episode of this show with a little game to break the ice. Okay? Right. <laughs> so the game that I've prepared for you today is called Rapid Fire. Now, I'm going to give you two options, and you have to pick the first option that comes into your head. Okay. No dwelling. Rapid, rapid. Now, these are, let's say, controversial topics in geosciences, yep. okay? Most geologists will side with one of the options and feel very passionate about their choice. Now, mind you, most of these are interchangeable terms. However, once you pick your side, you tend to defend your choice with a fervorous passion, completely dismissing the other option. <laughs> so I must warn you that things could get quite dicey with our listeners. 
Are you up for it? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. I mean, I'm just kidding. It will be fine. Okay, quick answers, remember. Yep. Ready? Go. Black shale or carbonaceous moldstone? Black shale. Diabase or dolerite? Dolerite. Ooh, dolerite. <laughs> Very Australian of That's you. right. <laughs> Diabase is North America. <laughs> Intrusive or plutonic rock? Plutonic. Pellite or lutite? Lutite. Nuna or Columbia? Nuna. Oh, really? Um, it's interesting, you know, because the paper I wrote with Zhao Guochuan back in 2001 actually used Columbia when we defined the, the you know, supercontinent of that time frame. But in reality, I kind of, you know, the subsequent way the terms developed, um, and particularly, I think, you know, Paul Hoffman in 1996 used Nuna. And so I think in terms of hierarchy and first usage, uh, Nuna is the better word. I left the most controversial one at the end. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure we'll get many angry comments on the socials, but <laughs> that's, that's how it that's goes. Life. <laughs> Look, I have to say that in my opinion, Peter made some good points there to explain his choices of Nuna over Columbia. With that being said, I'm sure that many of you are livid that everything he just said is a bunch of schist and that you and only you know the right answer. Let's take it to Twitter. Let me know if you agree or not with his answer. You can message me and follow me at GeoDrB, that is G-E-O-D-R-B. Now back to the show. So Peter, now that we have already stirred things up and are feeling a little bit more comfortable, let's challenge a few more of the basic concepts that we learn early in our geoscience educations, shall we? So when I was on my first year of university in my intro to geology class, I learned that a fundamental rule of geology is uniformitarianism. So this concept was proposed by James Hutton, who is uh, incidentally featuring an episode of another podcast from the Geology Podcast Network called Geological Expositions of Yore. I'll put the link to that podcast in the show description so that people can check it. But anyway, the major idea behind uniformitarianism is that the present is the key to the past, meaning that the idea that Earth has always changed in uniform ways and that we can look into present processes to understand certain rocks, uh, how certain rocks were formed. For example, when you see ripple marks in a sandstone, you can look to the sediments at the bottom of rivers or seas, and there you observe similar textures to the ripples found in the rocks. And then you realize that these are processes that are behind the development of that sedimentary structure in rocks that are a million and even billions of years old. But that's not necessarily true for everything in the early Earth. Um, what are some of the differences between the geological processes that we observe today and some of the things that were happening during the Archean and Hadean? That's a fundamental question that I think we're all grappling with. Um, and, you know, again, it's one of those things that invokes strong responses in people. Some would say that, look, really, it wasn't that different and a uniformitarian approach is valid. Others would say, look, there are fundamental differences and we have to account for them. I, my personal belief is that there are differences. Um, but they are related to the same physical processes. In other words, I think of uniformitarianism as more about um, 
the physics, the way the Earth behaves. So there's a set of chemical reactions, there's a set of you know, electromagnetic responses, um, and they're, they're not going to change. The gravity was still operating 4.5 billion years ago, etc. So in that sense, you know, uniformitarianism is valid. But um, I suppose the important point is that clearly, you know, the Earth, uh, the interior of the Earth was a lot hotter, and so the way the, the rocks of the Earth responded to that higher um, gradient, higher thermal gradient, was different than it is today. The chemical reactions involved um, were probably the same kind of chemical reactions, but the physics of the rocks um, behaved differently. And so some of the responses to that are that um, you know, the, the, the strength of rocks, their rheology um, changes through time, and so uh, the way the um, outer shell of the Earth has responded to those changes has also changed through time, as has, of course, the way um, we, and by we I mean the biosphere, has interacted and uh, responded through time. And so, you know, there was no probably biosphere 4.55 billion years ago. It's evolved and there's kind of this feedback mechanism. Right. Um, one thing that I think it's quite, um, well, I mean, it's a bit of a, of a question mark at this point, but a lot of scientists um, argue whether or not the subduction processes that we observe today uh, were the same uh, on early Earth, or uh, you know, uh, if that was something that was developed a bit more recent in Earth's history. I mean, as, as geologists, we are quite confident in the fact that subduction is one of the main processes behind crust formation and recycling in recent geological history, which includes right now in the present. I mean. New crust is being formed through magmatism as we speak, right, in the Andes and uh, North America, for example. However, when it comes to the early stages of the Earth, we're not so sure about when and how processes like subduction, which we talked about, started to take place. In your opinion, when do we think the geologic processes began to resemble those we know and see on Earth today? That's another controversial question that uh, you ask five geologists and you'll have 10 opinions about, I suspect. Um, my personal belief, again, is that you know, by the end of the Archean, we started to see processes that we resemble today present in, in the geological record. Others would argue a lot older, some would argue uh, considerably younger. It's a, it's a hard question because, you know, the rock record is very incomplete. Um, there's not much material preserved. You know, the rocks that are older than about 3 billion years make up less than 5% of the preserved record of the Earth. You know, were they rep representative of the processes that operated at that time or are they something special? And that's allowed them to be preserved. What sort of features um, we should look for? I mean, subduction is about recycling. It's about moving material back into the mantle. Are there other processes that would have operated in the higher thermal gradients that, that operated on the Earth at that time? Um, could have they also um, been active? And so people have proposed various things, you know, drips um, coming off the base of the lithosphere, um, which is kind of a form of de delamination of the lithosphere, um, and various other, other mechanisms have been proposed. They result in, in recycling of materials. So, you know, if you're generating crust, and, and clearly we probably had some processes of generation, the, the, we didn't have a, have a classic rigid lid the whole time. Um, so if you're generating new crust, it could be oceanic or whatever, then you have to remove material as well. 
Subduction is a very efficient way of doing that, uh, and certainly that's been operating, everyone would agree, for the last 750 million years. Some, including myself, would argue that it goes considerably older. The telltale signs of subduction, and particularly the telltale signs under this higher thermal regime that the Earth was uh, operating under, um, might be different, however. And one of the key elements is that as you subduct material back into the Earth, then um, its, its rheological properties uh, will change. And so really, um, as, the, as the plates go down, they, they lose coherency when the mantle is a couple of hundred degrees warmer than it is today. So this concept of the, the oceanic lithosphere going back down as a coherent slab, perhaps with the transition zone, perhaps beyond that we see today, probably isn't so valid back at that time frame. It doesn't mean that we didn't have material going down, it's just the way it went down is probably different. You, you mentioned before that the, there is a problem with the Earth record. Um, and my question to you is, why is it biased and why can't we just look into the rocks to see the past as far back as we want to? I wish we could. Um, and it's really about uh, preservation, isn't it? Is preservation just a happenstance? In other words, it's a random process. Um, and so uh, as you go backwards in time, then this happenstance, this, this um, random process continues to operate, in which case you would hope that randomly there's a, there's a selection of material preserved. I suppose um, we've argued that uh, it's not quite so random um, and that there are specific environments that are better preserved than others. And certainly this gets back and also to the question of how long plate tectonics or subduction has operated uh, because um, the kind of the observations we would make is that there is selective preservation in um, collision zones, that those materials tend to be preserved more in the rock record, whereas the normal rocks that, that are preserved during ongoing subduction in what we sometimes term accretionary origins um, are more likely to be uh, removed and lost from the geological record. So again, um, material is preserved, uh, but it's preserved in particular settings and environments. And of course, that then brings back to the question, well, okay, you said there's selective preservation, Peter, but uh, you also related it to a plate tectonic environment. If there wasn't plate tectonics early on, what was happening with preservation? And I don't think we really know, other than the fact that clearly the rocks that we do have preserved tend to be in these older cratons. They're characterised by a very thick, cool, stable lithosphere. Um, and they're, they're, once they form, and they, they clear, clearly have formed in the Precambrian, in, in the Archean, in fact, um, then they've remained and, and hung around for billions of years. So the question then is, well, how did those processes, what, what processes formed those cratons, and uh, are they representative, one, of the processes that operated back then, because, as I said, we only have 5% of the rock record um, is, is 3 billion years or older. And so uh, is that representative of all the processes that operated back in the Archean? I suspect not. Um, and so uh, again, you know, you've got to interpret those observations. You've got to interpret, in other words, the Archean rocks. Um, are they representative or not? And then what does that mean in terms of overall process? So there's a, a number of degrees of freedom in the way we reach a conclusion. And that's you know, the, the scientific method. In a sense, we make observations, we make interpretations, and then we put them out there for people to evaluate. 
And that's why we have these controversies, because really um, people tend to go A, B and C, and then they reach C and say that's the right answer. Well, in fact, often it could be A, B and E rather than A, B and C is the thought process. And so different people reach conclusions, uh, different conclusions. I think that as geologists, our first choice is always to go into the field, uh, observe this amazing outcrop where all the processes are very well explained by the rocks itself and demonstrated in various degrees. But I mean, if that's not the case for you know much younger rocks, uh, and especially with the processes that you have uh, described of you know um, bias in preservation and um, you know and what exactly is recorded and what was lost um, that's when we start to really think about you know all the other pieces that uh, we need to put together to form a picture which aren't exactly just you know describing rocks in the field so what are some of the ways that we can extract more information from what we have okay. clearly you know um Geochemistry has been a major um, advance. All advances in geochemistry have been incredibly significant, I think, in extracting more. Uh, there's only a limited number of surface outcrops. They're variably preserved, as we've said. Um, and so we have to maximise the data we get from them. And uh, so the advances in geochemistry over the last quarter century, particularly in terms of microanalysis of all the elements plus you know, the isotope, isotopic systems, have really revolutionized our understanding of the Earth and opened up a whole bunch of new um, ideas uh, and new methodologies for approaching these problems. And so uh, I think you know, that's been a major advance. Uh, the second thing I think, which is, which is perhaps a bit more recent, but I think is going to be more significant in the time ahead, is uh, modeling, numerical models, uh, particularly when we don't have much preserved. Now, now, models are only as good as what you put into them. And so I think models are evolving. The, the ability of the code to look at more complex situations is advancing. And so I think they are really, we're going with leaps and bounds in, uh, in modeling and the insights that is providing into our understanding of the early Earth as well, where, you know, we really don't have, have much preserved. And, you know, particularly if we're talking about um, processes that, uh, in a sense, are no longer preserved. You know, all that early Earth history, the first 500 million years, we have a few zircon grains, and we've done an incredible job uh, in terms of analyzing those, analyzing their inclusions, and making uh, and improving our understanding of what's going on. Um, but there's no actual rocks really preserved from that time period. Numerical modeling has provided some insights into the kind of processes that may have formed those zircons. And so it's not one thing or the other, it's everything we need to apply and use to understand Earth history. In that opening text that we just uh, listened to from your article, Earth Matters, a Temple to Our Planet's Evolution, you write that there is no more fundamental issue from either a philosophical or practical viewpoint than to understand Earth history and how it has evolved to form the environment we live in and the resources on which we depend. What is the importance of understanding the early Earth record and how can that impact our lives? From a practical standpoint? Impacting our lives from a practical standpoint 
is probably very small. Um, it's not going to solve cancer, um, etc. So, you know, it's, it's, but it's part of human nature to understand, you know, our environment to, to question. Um, and whether we you know, question plate tectonics or non-plate tectonic environments, it doesn't really matter. Um, it's people questioning, it's people thinking, it's people wondering. And, uh, you know, we're, we're a unique species in that we do wonder. We wonder, you know, why is the Earth like that? Why are the stars the way they are? Some people um, like to focus, say, on, on a lithium deposit, spend their whole life studying lithium or studying feldspars and, and you know, the distribution of elements within, within this particular mineral phase. Other people, you know, are interested in a much more global uh, distribution of rock units or whatever, but, but it takes all kinds to make the world go round. In other words, to understand a problem, it takes both the person who looks at a very broad temporal and spatial scale and someone who looks at a very specific spatial and temporal scale. And they all you know, interact together, um, and it's, under, it's one understanding the other through which we make advances. Uh, and perhaps a more obtuse uh, example of scientific research and its unknown applications is someone like Copernicus, who in the, I don't know exactly when he was when he even lived, but say in the 17th century, was was working, you know, in Europe, probably studying in a little room, and there were there were you know poor people, peasants out in the street, just trying to survive. They didn't give a brass razoo about um, whether the sun, you know was the centre of the, of the solar system or whether the Earth was the centre of the solar system. Um, but that was what he was worrying about and what he, what he uh, worked on. But now, of course, look at everything. This, this talk today would be impossible without um, phones and the concept of satellites and uh, this whole you know, environment and un our understanding of the solar system. So it's very hard to predict your observations, I don't want to compare myself or you to <laughs> Copernicus, clearly we're not in the same league, but you, aren't, but, you know, the point is that, that we all contribute. Right, we're all clogs in the machine. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and uh, we talked a lot about these fundamental questions that uh, we as a group and um, as a collective of scientists are trying to answer. Um, what are the efforts that are being put into resolving some of the questions? Uh, more specifically, what is the role of your project, the Pulse of the Earth? What are the, yeah, what are the goals of this project? Look, it's really about um, uh, understanding, in particular, I suppose, the early Earth and how we transitioned uh, from a, a non-plate tectonic environment to a plate tectonic environment. What are some of the uh, signposts along the way that mark that, that change? Um, how do we recognise them? Can we produce unique interpretations on individual observations? And I think that's really the problem and why there is this great dispute about say things like when plate tectonics started because there are non-unique answers here and so our work is really about making uh, um, additional observations collecting data whether it be geochemical whether it be numerical modeling even geophysical data that will allow us to understand um, this this record and, and not just in the early earth because clearly the earth has gone through a number of changes over its history um, and so you can think of, you know, the Earth record as, as, as a kind of a bit of a, I suppose, a wavelength. There are ups and downs, pulses in this activity. Um, what do those pulses mean? And there's pulses within pulses, of course, just like any waveform. Um, and so uh, what are the major ones? 
what do they correspond with if you see a change from particular rock types, Camardiites or TTGs, to a different rock type in the geological record, um, is that just telling us that uh, there was a uniformitarian approach, that plate tectonics was operating and produced just this whole variety of rocks for some reason that were different then today, or is it telling us that uh, there was a different process operating um, and the rocks are a part of that response to that record? And then another thing that I notice um, going down the list of the researchers that are involved in the pulse is that it is filled with youngsters, like uh, Massimo would say. So Massimo is our chief technician at the Isotopia Lab at Monash, and he liked to say that, you know, there are a lot of youngsters going around here. Why is that the case? What is the advantage of bringing in so many early career researchers and PhD students? Um. I think there are a number of uh, reasons for it. Uh, look, I, I'm unfortunately closer to the end of my career than the beginning, um, and so I suppose you, you start to think about what you have done, um, how you learnt and, and what you valued during your training. And uh, I think, you know, one of the things that I really benefited from as a researcher was to be, to be able to do, in a sense, what I wanted. Um, in other words, I wasn't told, tomorrow, you know, you've got to describe this, this rock or, you know, analyze this rock or do whatever. Um, I was uh, really uh, allowed to, uh, you know, get on with it and, and study a problem. And so I really like to encourage people to just get on with it. If you're going to become a, a researcher, an active scientist, then you need a certain level of independence. You need to demonstrate that you are capable of independent thought and research. But ultimately, you want to give them the freedom to uh, develop and pursue their own ideas. And uh, yes, they'll, they'll go down some wrong paths or they'll waste some time, but that's part of the learning process. And so I think that's really important. Um, and I also think that there's no right or wrong approach. I may think, um, you know, well, I, I wouldn't have done it that way, but, but ultimately, you know, it's, it's about them learning that or them showing me that, oh, gee, I was wrong. You know, that's a much better way of doing it. Mm -hmm. things. So unless you have a diversity of approaches, you're not going to do that. You can't just repeat what's been gone before. You have to try new things. Um, and, you know, youngsters are much more open. As you get older, you become a bit, <laughs> bit more conservative for a whole variety of reasons. You're a bit more, uh, you're, you're not as open to change, to doing new things. You've kind of, you know, less energy. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's really exciting to have young, active people um, out there making advances and uh, me hopefully basking in their reflected glory. So, yeah. <laughs> So for, for our next segment, me and the other producers of this podcast wanted to start a tradition of asking always the same three questions at the end of every episode. These questions are a bit more personal. They're designed to make each guest a bit more familiar to the listener and also to allow us, you know, with future episodes to compare experiences and opinions across all of the geoscience research fields. So my first question to you is, how did you first decide to become a geologist? 
Look, I think like many people who become geologists, you don't plan it. It happens. Um, it evolves. You work into the into the job. Um, I can say that I've never um, thought about my career path. It's just kind of happened. But particularly um, with respect to doing geology, I went to university. My, my parents actually thought I'd never finish high school. They, I was always pretty hopeless at school, really. Um, wasn't interested in it. Um, you know, in, when I, in my day, they didn't, you know, um, try and say everyone was equal. You know, there were, there were those that were in the high class and those that were in the low class. And I was in the low class for, for <laughs> most things. Um, and then around year 10 in high school, I got a bit more interested. Um, I just started to like, you know, what was going on or whatever and started to do a bit better. And so at the end of high school, I actually won a scholarship to university, which was fortunate because I wouldn't have gone otherwise. I couldn't have afforded to go. Um, and so I won a scholarship to university, which was great. Um, and so I went and I thought, yes, yeah, science would be good. I didn't have anything in particular in mind. I suppose I was thinking more about biology. And in fact, I majored in zoology at university with perhaps a leaning towards marine science. I took geology as an elective, so I did you know, in first year maths, chemistry, biology and geology, that was it. Um, and I like I liked geology and things, and, but I was still majoring in zoology and in fact uh, in third year, final year of undergraduate, I um, started third year zoology. I was very good at it, I was top of the, top of the university at Sydney. Um, but I thought, you know, I don't really enjoy this as much as the geology. And so after a couple of weeks of the first semester, I pulled out and switched over to geology full time um, and haven't looked back Very as brief. the saying goes. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but why did I do that? And I think one of the reasons was that, you know, I was this shy, pimply little 17 or probably by third year, 20 year old kid. Um, and uh, I really just liked the environment in geology. It was much more intimate. In other words, there weren't these monster classes of, of you know, lots of people doing uh, biology of one form or another. They were much smaller classes. You got to uh, talk to and meet the guy giving the lectures. And they were mainly guys in those days rather than <laughs> women, I'm afraid to say. Um, so uh, you did that. You went on field trips. And yes, Biology had some field trips, but geology field trips, you know, you camped in the middle of nowhere with um, your, your lecturer. And I'd grown up in, in Sydney in the city. I'd never been camping in my life. Um, and so I really liked that. And uh, it was a great environment. And so, you know, it wasn't necessarily the scientific challenge, although I liked the scientific challenge. It was something about the whole, the, the environment of, of earth sciences that I, that I really appreciated. And obviously through time, I became much more interested in uh, the history of the earth and, and the way the earth works. But I, but I originally started off because of just jumping back to this zoology, marine science background into more into, you know, I suppose, paleontology and sedimentology initially. Mm -hmm. But then I kind of, you know, moved, moved down through the stratum of the earth <laughs> into some of the, the deeper levels. Um, so the next question I have here is, what are, oh, okay, so what are some of the specifics of the research that you are conducting at the present? And I know that we talked a lot about, you know, the polls um, in, in general, and I guess this answer has kind of like already been answered throughout the episode. So to mix it up a little bit, maybe you talk to me about what's on your desk right now or something like that, you know. What's on my desk? Um, well, you know, again, 
doing lots of things uh, not always um, directly related to the pulse of the earth um, reviews of papers um, you know I've got a bunch of papers to review there's, a, there's an interesting one from science that I've got to get back uh, like most things it's overdue <laughs> getting these nasty reminder letters uh, to do but but you know so there's, so there's journal reviews and uh, um, I think again as you get on in your career you kind of get a lot of those to do and things and I think it's important that people do it a lot of people say I'm too busy and things and, and look sure we are busy but it's important to one provide that feedback and also because you are busy <coughs> it's one, one way of keeping abreast of the reading and what's going on um, so that's important you also again because of the position you're in you write reference letters or evaluation letters of people for promotion you know you're contacted by various groups around the world um, doing my own work uh, I'm, I'm writing a paper on Gongwana at the moment in fact I'm about to read to rewrite it because it was rejected uh, <laughs> and things so the bastards you know I thought, so you see even a laureate professor gets paper rejected so keep your chins up people. absolutely <laughs> absolutely yeah it happens to everyone and uh, look rejection is part of the game and and you know sure it pisses you off and you think um, oh those silly reviewers you know they mm -hmm. don't know what's going on but really it probably means I don't know what's going on I haven't expressed myself clearly perhaps I'm perhaps it's bullshit perhaps it doesn't deserve to be published yeah. anyway but but let's hope that it does and it will it will appear one day and it probably means that um, you know I was you become too focused and, and you know you start to believe your own bullshit really um, and so you have to be careful and the uh, review process is important and critical reviews are particularly important either either you haven't expressed it clearly um, they haven't understood which means you haven't expressed it clearly or you've got something wrong in which case you need to rethink it so you know they're they're important process and, and that's what the scientific method is about really you know it's generating ideas public right trying to write them up you know science isn't science unless you communicate it it's not this self-indulgent thing that you're going to spend the rest of your life worrying about something and never communicating it. it's about communication and that a com communication to be worthwhile has to be evaluated and sure you're going to get your knockbacks and doesn't matter whether it's knockbacks for papers knockbacks for job applications promotions whatever we all have had um, knockbacks on all those things okay so our final question is what do you enjoy doing when you are not geology mm, good one as well um, being outdoors um, you know walking uh, as I said I'm you know I suppose I got into geology because I liked um, being outdoors I liked field work uh, and I still like being outdoors. You know, my knees, my ankles, and my lungs aren't quite as good as they once were. So uh, what I attempt now is slightly different to what I would have attempted then. But even just going for a stroll, and I get try and go. I go for a walk most mornings. Um, when I'm not doing that, um, and certainly combining that, I like to combine that with photography. I've always liked photography. Uh, as, a, as a teenager, I you know used to uh, take over my mum's laundry and uh, develop my own um, film and print it. And uh, recently, interestingly enough, I've got back to photography. I mean, sure, we go out in the field, we go on field trips, we take photos, and and so there was that transition from you know using film to using digital cameras. 
And then a couple of years ago, my son, I gave my cameras to my son, my old film cameras to my son, and he got into film photography. And then he came and visited and said, oh, you know, why don't we go out and do some photography together? So I pulled out, I had still one film camera left and I went out and we did that and I really enjoyed it. And so I've got back into film photography now. Um, and I bought myself a nice old camera, kind of one of the classics I always wanted as a kid but could never afford. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's slow. You don't get an instantaneous response. You, you have to wait a couple of weeks till you finish the film or you send it off and get it developed. I'm, I'm too lazy to develop it myself these days. Um, and so it comes back and you look at it and you think, oh, yeah, I could have done better with that one. Um, and, but things, but I think, you know, that, that process of I like the physicality of the mechanical camera um, that's all metal, it's all mechanical, there's no light meter, there's no instantaneous return. Um, and it's, it's not about so much taking the photo, it's about the process of walking along, making, just looking at the scenery, perhaps stopping and saying, oh yeah, that'd make a nice photo or something I'd like to capture and preserve. And so I enjoy that. Right, yeah, I can appreciate that. Um, okay, that's it. So I learned a lot in this last few minutes. I hope that some of our listeners can say the same. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this, Peter. And um, it was a great pleasure. Thank you very much. It's um, a great honor to be asked. And, uh, you know, I think uh, it's great. I hope that uh, my thoughts uh, are of some interest to people and uh, hopefully will stimulate people to go out and uh, pursue an active career in the in earth sciences as i've said you know it's this wonderful planet and uh, we're really lucky to be here um, but we also have a responsibility not only to understand it but to look after it yeah i couldn't agree more and to all of our listeners out there uh, i hope to see you in the next episode of nice chats thank you <laughs> so just one final question off script uh, you mentioned that you spend a lot of time doing field work in the early stages of your career. My question to you is, how many continents did you do field work in? I've worked, well, I suppose, you know, overall, I've now worked on every continent. But... Yeah. So the reason why I asked you about um, the continents that you worked in is because I interview Christopher Spencer for one of our upcoming episodes. And Spencer, he's going to talk to us about field work, his field work experience. And he's done field work, he's conducted field work in every continent apart from two. One of them is Antarctica, which is understandable, yeah. uh, not so easy to get down there. But the second one, you're never going to believe it. North America. No, we don't field work in North America. Can't be North America. So I guess we're just going to have to stay tuned for his episode to find out which is the other continent that Spencer has never been in. I recommend to all of you reading Peter's geology paper, Earth Matters, a temple to our planet's evolution. It is open access, which means that you don't need to pay anything to read it. I'll put the link to it in the show's notes. The Sir David Attenborough speech simulation was done at Vocodes with the use of Tacotron. You can make your own version of it at vocodes.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Geology Podcast Network and is sponsored by Traveling Geologist. More episodes of this and other GPN podcasts are available at travelinggeologist.com 
or wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Please subscribe to Nice Chats and tell your friends about the show. If you like our podcast, please give us a five-star review. See you next time. And remember, don't go chasing any waterfalls. Unless you need to take structural measurements from the rocks behind it. Bye.